0: So, welcome everyone to day four of the Sustainable Finance Summit. My name is Abby Dadio, and I am representing Boys Dow at Cornell. And I am here with Ben Hillier from Boys Dow at the University of Cambridge. And today's first panel is titled Mapping ESG Metrics to Investor Values. And the featured speakers are Lucy Auden, Naomi Haber, and Zach Stein. Before we start, I'd like to open the floor to each of our speakers to give a brief introduction of themselves, their organization, and their role at that organization. Um, Lucy, would you like to start? We can start with you. Thanks, Abigail. Hey, everyone, pleasure to be here. So
1: I'm Lucy orden I work for a department of the University of Cambridge called the Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Um, and within that, I manage a group of investors. So these are institutional asset owners, asset managers, and investment consultants called the Investment Leaders Group. And we convene that group to address the most challenging um, questions and, and problems that they have in progressing to more sustainable investment models. And we reach into the university to access the, the, the research that we then use to kind of build the frameworks and tools and metrics, which will be discussed today, um,
0: to, to help um, the investors.
2: Thank you, and um, Zach, do you want to go next?
3: Sure. Uh, Hey, everyone. I'm Zach from Carbon Collective. I'm calling out of the Bay Area in California. Um, We at Carbon Collective are, I think, the first uh, investment platform where we build comprehensive portfolios. So something you could put for a whole retirement account that are 100% built on solving climate change. Um, So we have some pretty clear theories of change here. Um, We've looked a lot at what exists in the market, at ESG. There's good things, there's bad things. Definitely happy to share more. Um, So uh, that's our background and kind of the the focused lens that we are coming from.
2: Perfect. And Naomi, if you want to go now. Yeah, of
4: course. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's such an honor to be here and also participating with Lucy and Zach. Um, I'm, I'm just really excited for what the next hour will hold. But I'm from Brent Broadridge Financial Solutions. We're an international company, but I'm based out of the Manhattan office. Um, we're a global fintech leader with about $5 billion in revenues, and we specialize in critical infrastructure that powers investing, corporate governance, and communications to enable better financial lives. So Basically what that means in simple terms is we offer communication solutions that cover billions of pieces of like mail, emails, digital communications uh, annually. And that reaches about 80% of North American households. So we have a really big reach, which is exciting. Uh, my role specifically is I'm a senior analyst on our corporate strategy team. So I focus on how can we increase digitization? How can we increase transparency around our ESG solutions offerings and what we do internally? Uh, writing our annual sustainability reports and other sustainability disclosure, and also working towards setting goals and targets like science-based targets and how can we achieve that? So yeah, it's great to meet you all.
2: Perfect and thank you so much for all of those introductions. So kind of coming into the main um, aspect of the of the discussion today. So we'll be speaking about ESG metrics and their impacts on sustainability. And as you probably have heard, we've chosen these speakers specifically because they each work on an ESG or impact metric for their own organisations. And we want to deconstruct the greater purpose of these frameworks and how our generation should interpret these ratings as they relate to impacts on climate change and other tangible environmental and social problems. So just quickly for those who are kind of new to ESG rating systems, these systems provide a rating for a company on their environmental, social or governance aspects. So for example, a company may rank low on environmental aspects if they are involved with coal extraction, a company may rank highly on social aspects if they provide affordable homes to um, underprivileged communities, and a company may rank low on governance aspects if, for example, they have weak, weak checks and balances on executive decisions. So now to um, kick off the questions, I have a question for, for Lucy. And with your um, sustainable investment framework, this is a framework that's linked to the SDGs, And I wanted to ask how this framework is presented to large asset managers and is it presented as saying that higher scores present higher returns or is it about higher environmental impact?
1: Great question. Um, So the the framework, the sustainable investment framework, we actually published it um, originally as the investment impact framework but then renamed it because the word impact as I'm sure Zach and Naomi will agree it's it's, it's so loaded um, in the investment context at the moment and one of the kind of core principles for our framework is that all investment has an impact on the world regardless of um, you know statements of intent whether it's a green fund labeled such you know an ESG fund etc and um, so we really wanted to create a framework that investors could use to understand their, their bi-directional impact so um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess you'd say. Um, so the way that it's structured is it comprises six metrics. And this was about the, the smallest but most sensible um, number of themes that we could um, uh, reduce the SDGs down to without losing the context, because we, we simply, you know, we don't think that it's um, decision useful for investors to have one environmental score, one social score, because in that environmental kind of bucket, you've got Um, how um, an investment portfolio contributes to climate stability and also how it contributes to resource security and healthy ecosystems. Now, obviously, as with all of the SDGs, they are very much overlapped um, and interlinked, but, um, you know, we we decided to keep those separate. So there's three environmental and three social metrics, and essentially they provide a dashboard. Um, So another core principle um, that we we. Based the framework on is making sure that it provides um, a simple and quick readout for investors to be able to understand what the impact um, or the footprint of their fund is across across the SDGs. Um, and the intention of it was actually to go on a fund fact sheet. So next to where you have obviously your track record and other kind of financially material information, you're also showing with the same weight and materiality and importance to investors, what the impact of their fund is um, across these, these um, different impact metrics. So um, the way that we actually think about um, uh, kind of measuring it in terms of financial gains, if I've understood your your question correctly, uh, we actually did a kind of tangential bit of research which um, uses the dashboard that we created and we conducted an experiment with the psychometric center from the Judge Business School at Cambridge and the Department of Psychology, which went out to 2000 um, US um, individuals and asked them to choose between funds that were essentially um, had different levels of sustainability according to what the dashboard was showing them because the, um, the hypothesis that we wanted to test was, if you show investors and members of the public the impact of their portfolio and the sustainability of those decisions that they're making, will it, will it change their behavior in terms of how how they're investing? Because it was a couple of years ago, you know, there was a lot of kind of talk in the industry. And I also have, have an asset management background and I heard this a lot, kind of, oh, you know, I can make these decisions as an asset manager, but are my investors really calling for it? You know, do they want it? Now, obviously, those trends have become a lot clearer now. But when we conducted the experiment, the results showed that people would would choose uh, more sustainable investments, um, even if it meant um, sacrificing two to three percent financial returns. So there was a pretty, pretty strong message in there. Um, And we always think of it um, as sustainable outcomes very much can be delivered alongside financial returns. And that's really kind of important. Um, You know, they're they're equally as important, but they they need to be considered alongside each
2: other. Yes, thank you. And the the research you mentioned is incredibly interesting because oftentimes people believe that the average retail investor may not be willing to take these sacrifices and returns to create impact. And you mentioned how that kind of you show investors the impact that the investments are making. And can you be possibly more specific about what these impacts are and what kind of more sustainable investments and sustainable outcomes are?
1: Yeah, another really good question. Um, so obviously there are huge gaps in the data that's available to investors at the moment, be that either um, the data points that are available at scale or potentially that there aren't currently um, Data that we can use as proxies to measure certain types of impacts. So, you know, there's an ongoing research agenda there. But we, the Investment Leaders Group, didn't want to wait for data to be solved. It's never going to be solved. It's an ongoing um, kind of, you know, global agenda. So, each of the six metrics that we developed have um, what we call a base version, which is essentially what can be measured today. So, investors can get going and use use the methodology to calculate what is my impact against, for example, climate stability per million dollars invested, and I'll I'll talk you through that in a minute. And then we also um, outlined um, an ideal metric for each of the six themes, because we wanted to provide essentially a research roadmap, which is where we as a collective, so the university and those those members of the ILG, um, think that decision useful impact measurement should be headed. Um, So, We're in a um, an ongoing research um, process to develop each of those metrics, one theme at a time, into their ideal metric. We completed um, the metric on climate stability last year. So, um, what that was was essentially scope one and two emissions per million dollars invested, and that is helpful for investors, but only to a certain extent. You know, it's only helpful if you can understand what that means. You know, what does X metric equivalent tons of of CO2 equivalent um, emissions, use the word equivalent too many times there. (laughs) You know, what does that mean for the planet and what does it mean for global heating? So um, the ideal version of that metric was essentially what we developed last year, which is a method that converts scope one and two emissions into um, a metric in degree C. So people can understand in that quick and easy readout, Uh, What if the question is, if every um, company in the world behaved as this, as those in this portfolio does, what would the temperature of the world be? Um, And I should mention now that we um, publish all of our research is open. Um, It's all publicly available because we think it's really, really important that everyone has access to those methodologies so they can see what is being calculated and then go away and replicate it themselves.
0: great thank you for getting more specific cuz that's something that we always try to like deconstruct at Voys. as we will talk about you know esg or something like that and we always start with the question of what is that what are we considering esg what are we considering impact or more sustainable and so my next question is for naomi because naomi's at broadridge creating a new sort of metric system and in creating new metric systems, you know, you have to sell it to clients. And when, since there are so many different metric systems, when you're creating a new one, you know, that sort of implies that you need to, like, do something different and something better than your competitors to sell that. So how do you plan on, like, marketing your ESG metric system that's in the works to clients, um, especially when there are other existing competitors and sort of what is the incentive for clients to purchase your system as opposed to others? Is it like more impact or more returns or a mix of both? So thank you.
4: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I apologize in advance if there's background noise, um, Manhattan, it's the risk of living here, but, Tell me if you can't hear me, please interrupt. So yes, Broadridge has a bunch of solutions that we offer, increasingly focusing on ESG and ESG solutions because we're at the crux of this financial institution and thinking about communications for asset managers, banks and broker dealers, issuers. Um, a big part of our footprint is printing paper, right? And so the biggest way that we can make an impact as a company is reducing, uh, increasing digitization, reducing paper mailings on behalf of our clients. And so our client focus is huge. and. I think the way I like to think about our stakeholder groups before I go into answering your question is it's kind of threefold. It's investors, clients, and associates, right? And so this is kind of doing a double click, as my boss will say, on the on the client lens. So one of the solutions that we have in that respect is something called this ESG performance dashboard, which you which you just mentioned. It's basically a, a start at helping companies make a sense of conflict conflicting ESG ratings and performance metrics, allowing them to that better ma- monitor their progress on their ESG. Uh, programs, benchmark their performance relative to peers, and identify their strengths and weaknesses in their sustainability disclosure. Now, that sounds like a lot to lift, and it is, but what we did was we partnered with a pre-existing ratings agency group called CSR Hub, and basically what we did was we took a data repository, including over, what, what was it? 300 million aggregated and normalized data points from 735 different data sources. And we covered around 148 different countries. So we basically took a buttload of data, which is Broadridge's strength, and we said, all right, ISS, this one rating agencies gives Apple and Google an A in their environmental social governance. And they gave, and then MSCI gave them a B and then um, Sustainalytics gave them a 50 out of hundred. And we averaged all these ratings, weighted them accordingly. So for an Apple or Google, maybe governance is a little more important in the ESG than like, I don't know, their, uh, their how much oil they're using right so for different types of companies for different industries if you're a hotel kind of like in the hotel sector maybe your waste footprint's more important than like diversity including just because of what inherently what industry you're in and therefore where you have the most impact so we took all these ratings we aggregated them we weighted the averages and then we said hey guys here this uh interactive data dashboard is to say okay, I'm Google, I'm someone who works for Google, I can go to this dashboard, I can see not only what is our average ratings across these 735 different data sources, but also how am I comparing to my peers? What are areas I need to improve in, right? What are the uh, ratings agencies that maybe matter most to me because there's so many freaking ratings agencies, which one should I focus on? So this is kind of looking at not really, really high level, but for those just starting out in their ESG journey, for those clients and issuers just starting to begin it, Where do I even start? I think this performance dashboard is a great way to start. And I think to answer your question, and how is it different from all of these other kind of ratings agencies and what are we doing different? We're not reinventing the wheel. I don't believe that we need another ratings agencies out there giving us A's or zeros or whatever else it might be. I think what we need is we need an aggregate right? We need a one solution, one size fits all. What's the average? What can I focus on so that I, when I first join my job, don't have to go to 735 ratings agencies and look at all of them and figure out what matters most. So that's what Broadridge trying to do. Our, our real strengths are in data. So by partnering with CSR Hub, this ratings agency, we were able to kind of come up with this one size fits all solution.
0: Great. I really like how you mentioned that you're aggregating existing data because that's something that we've Ben and I have been talking about and having this conversation is it's so confusing to consumers, you know, which metric they're supposed to believe and what each one is supposed to represent. And that's kind of the purpose of having this conversation. And so I like how you mentioned like that you're going to aggregate all these existing metrics and ratings to give one answer as opposed to saying um like let's create a whole new one and do the same thing but also mine's better because it includes this and those don't include that so i really like how you mentioned that and i think ben's going to ask the next question for zach
2: yeah this question for zach so kind of you mentioned at the start that you've created like uh, an extremely It's extremely focused on climate or solely focused on climate, like you mentioned, and on the climate transition. And I'd like to ask you kind of what type of investors are you hoping to attract and what are they hoping to achieve from using your framework?
3: Totally, totally. So. Uh, I first want to just give some kudos to Naomi and Broadridge and the effort to use less paper. Um, we are Broadridge customers, and uh, I hate getting all the mailers. Um, so let's digitize that, save trees. Uh, yeah. So you know, I'm going to hold you personally responsible um, until that happens. So thank you. Um, yeah. So maybe I'll just give like a quick overview of what, like, why we started Carbon Collective and what we're doing uh, and our approach. Um, so we came into this, looked around at ESG and ESG is just really hard. It's hard as an individual. You guys talked about this um, a lot, you know, Naomi of having kind of the aggregation of all of these data points, but it's still hard of being like, all right, if MSCI and like these companies are calling Google an A, but like, I, it's all proprietary data. Like it's all behind paywalls. Like I don't get to see what an A means. So you're basically saying like, trust MSCI or trust, you know, these other big data, right? Like agencies, which by averaging, maybe you can get to like maybe a better place, uh, which I think it makes a lot of sense as an approach. Um, we took a separate track of saying that climate is just the number one issue of our time. If we do not solve this, um, all other points are kind of moot. Um, and uh, also we can solve climate change. There is we have there is a clear path to doing it. We have most of the technology we need, and especially most of what we need to deploy in the next 10 years is it's not charity. Um, it is a smart investment. Um, the main thing that is missing in solving climate change is investment. And so that is our mission as a company, is how do we do that? Um, we also believe that it will, in the end, have stronger returns. Um, this is kind of a pushback on the you need to sacrifice um, it, for investing in a way that's sustainable, we believe that fossil fuels is fundamentally an industry that is in decline. Not for ethical reasons; it is being outcompeted, full stop. Um, and so, it, is, it does not make sense to hold that as an investor, and it does make sense to hold their competitors. Um, we so that's we started from a position of saying, let's look at what is it going to take. What are the best plans to solving climate change, and then say, how do we map that on? to the current stock market? And how do we make it in such a way that it's really easy to understand? Um, The way I like to think about it is we should be able to explain our portfolios to an intelligent eight-year-old and they should be able to understand them and and be able to reflect it back. So there's three parts um, in our stock portfolios. Uh, First, we divest. We start with about the 20% of, we are just now in the US stock market, but of the US stock market that are companies whose core business are dependent on fossil fuels. So, right now, there's not a viable path for them transitioning. And we, in a world that has to decarbonize. So, again, we both ethically and financially believe that we should not hold those companies that 20%. So, we take those away. We then give their share to the companies that are replacing them, building those technologies that are replacing them. We call it the climate index. As far as we know, it is the broadest collection of companies that are building solutions to climate change. Um, And so we put that in there, we take an index-based approach So we're not trying to pick who, which solar company is the best or worst. Nope, let's set these broad rules and then let it run. So we divest 20%, we reinvest the rest. And then we broadly hold the rest of the stock market with a few tweaks, but it's about 80% of it because these are the companies whose core business doesn't depend on fossil fuels. They can, I like to use the example of Coca-Cola In the world where we decarbonize, in the world where we solve climate change, Coke can still sell me a brown, sugary, bubbly beverage. Uh, That is not fundamentally mutually exclusive with that world, which means that's who we as shareholders, that we need to pressure them to move as quickly as possible to switch to 100% renewable energy, 100% electrified fleet, to protect their watersheds instead of abusing them, to change how they lobby. Um, Those are the companies that we should focus on. So that's our approach. Um, And we've kind of, and this is, uh, are a, a, a way of saying that we think that ESG is trying to capture the fact that the world is incredibly complicated and especially ethics are incredibly complicated. And it's saying, let's build something to try and make that simple and rockable and, and put it into it. And we believe that's just that's just really hard. And so it makes sense to focus in on one thing that is a solvable problem that we can really do and is the most critical.
2: Yes, thank you so much for that. And you touched upon many of the points kind of we're gonna come into. And like the the main one of this is kind of the dispersion of ESG rating systems. And this provides a lot of confusion for investors. And I mean, at Voy's, one of the main um, goals we have is increasing consumer transparency. So when you're kind of looking at, and I know you mentioned MSCI and I've got kind of an example to help articulate it to some of the people watching. So we have ExxonMobil, which is an oil and gas producer where they got a triple B rating under MSCI, which puts them as kind of an average ESG score. Whereas Morningstar Sustainalytics put them as a high risk, just about to push onto extreme risk. And then the way this can manifest in the portfolios you're investing in is that if you're investing in an ESG fund, where they're using the MSCI ratings, ExxonMobil may get in. Whereas if you're investing in a, um, an ESG fund from a different asset manager that uses Sustainalytics, they're, unlike, they're far less likely to have X or mobile. So what this means is that as a consumer, it's very unclear as to where the kind of the baseline is and the, the level of exclusion there is in the assets that they're investing in. So I'd kind of like to bring this idea of dispersion to Lucy as kind of you have the kind of large asset manager perspective. And is this dispersion of ESG metrics a large concern for asset managers that you speak with? and are they aware of it?
1: I think it is. And increasingly we're seeing more appetite for tools that help investors, asset managers navigate this space. So they're not looking for more metrics. And I think, you know, there is, we've created a new proprietary metric. There's a bit of a kind of collective eye roll, please not more, you know, what we need is is the ability um, for, for us as asset managers, I'm paraphrasing, to, to be able to make, um, Intelligent decisions according to what we've identified as being material for our investment strategies, et cetera, um, to, to be able to do that. So, yeah, I think there is definitely um, uh, a kind of collective recognition that what we need is better consensus around um, not just the type of metrics that we use, but also the definitions behind those metrics. So, for example, And the second one of the metrics that we're developing at the moment in this sustainable investment framework is looking at decent work, because at the moment, the the investment data that is disclosed at scale tells us how many jobs are supported by a company in a portfolio. And that tells you about the work doesn't really tell you anything about whether it's decent or not. So we're we're researching essentially how we can um, provide investors with that data. Um, to help assess the kind of the meaningful characteristics of, of those jobs. Um, And I guess the other thing that I would mention in terms of how investors are kind of feeling about ESG ratings and this dispersion is not only the need to really clarify, um, and that that's behind, you know, why we publish all of our methodologies really openly. We're really, um, you know, we really think that that's key, Um, but also, statements of intent and policies that companies have are really important you know they are um they are behind so much of what holds that governance and component of companies and they are behind um the way that co- companies act and how they set targets however we think it's really important that investors have tools that assess just the performance of companies, essentially, so they can take a stock check of where companies are on that journey. Because um, more and more, and we saw this coming out of COP26, you know, everyone saying this is fantastic. We've got all these net zero targets in place now, amazing coverage. But we need accountability tools that investors can use to check where are my assets on this journey? Where are my um, you know, and therefore inform engagement divestment decisions along, along the way. So we believe that there's a real strength um, in incorporating uh, performance data. So what I mean by that is not looking at what the net zero targets are, but looking at what the actual emissions were of the portfolio last year. Um, likewise, when we're talking about the decent work aspect, one of the, the things that comprises decent work is um, the... You know, the the healthy and safe the, the health and safety element of those jobs and it is important to understand what companies have in terms of policies and what proportion of people are being trained on those policies but that doesn't tell us how many accidents actually took place you know it's, it, investors really need um that almost like that look through i guess naomi using your your terminology it's the double click on the data what is the actual performance of those of those companies so um so just to provide that kind of that clarity in that stock check. Um, so I guess there's two different and um, something that I'd be interested to, to talk about a bit with the other panelists is um, this question of who are ESG ratings for and um, Abigail I know you mentioned earlier you know it's a whole industry that's been developed um, to help institutional asset managers make um, you know asset allocation decisions and engagement decisions but We cannot lose sight of the fact that this is for um, savers, public, you know, pension scheme holders, all of us, the public. And so whatever metrics are and, you know, the the confusion obviously doesn't help this, but it's important that we um, uh, reach consensus on what metrics should be um, is because it's all really for the end user members of, of the public.
2: Yes, definitely, and that's um, something we're going to be going to be definitely exploring later in in the time we have. But I think Abby's got a uh, a question next.
0: Definitely, I would um I would also like repeat that question for I'm going to ask Naomi a question next. But one is, I guess that's a good question too of who are these ratings for? From your perspective, it seems it's more for the companies, and also in considering that question, another thing I was thinking about is. You're kind of ahead in making the decision to aggregate all of these ratings and create one more clear rating, essentially. And I guess do you do you think that in the future, like government intervention um, or something, will ha- will be put in place to make this mandatory? Like, do you think that because it seems like you know, Lucy's saying the asset managers know, okay, there are a lot of ratings and that's something that they're aware of. You all work in the industry and you know that there are a lot of ratings and that's something to be aware of. So I'm sure the governments know that as well. And is that something that you can see in the future being um, like government intervention, kind of requiring a more clear, a clear system? And also like, who do you think To restate Lucy's question, who do you think these ratings are for and who are they meant to be for? Who should they be for? Sure.
4: Oh, wow. This is a weighty question. Uh, We're covering a lot of land here, so if we forget a piece, please tell me that I forgot a piece. I will go back happily. Let me let me take a stab at that. So there's a lot of things going around internationally. On the government scale for what regulations are coming about. There's a lot of moving pieces, but I'll highlight just a couple of that I think might be of note. A lot of my job is just keeping an eye on what regulations impact my company as an issuer, what's coming down the pipeline, what uh, metrics I need to be putting some extra focus on because soon they might be regulated by the SEC and we'll have to report them to like a governing body and not just Um, you know, these are the metrics that my materiality assessment that I did internally deemed are most important, and therefore I'm determining that I want to report them versus, you know, SEC regulation is saying that I have to. So um, right now it's a lot of guesswork, I think is the, the simple way to put it. There isn't There's a lot of apples to oranges comparison in terms of, I don't know where to invest my money, but one company is reporting their scope one and two and three emissions in full. And then this company only has their scope one emissions in a couple, like, three out of the 15 scope, three categories, whatever it might be, right? There's no way. And also if these companies are completely different sizes and completely different industries, then how could I say this massive emitter versus uh, fossil fuels versus this tiny little startup company that's barely emitting anything, should I invest in the startup then? Well, it's much smaller, maybe per person and per client, it's actually way more emissions, right? There's just so many moving parts. There's very little way to how, oops, okay. <laughs> There's very little way Sorry, to- Sorry, I pressed emissions. a button. All good. There's very little way to inform investors on where to put their money and how to invest sustainably and do impact investing right, I guess you could say. But um, just for some background, getting back to the the crux, there's a lot of regulations coming up. So in the US, we obviously recently rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, and actually very soon the SEC is expected to soon propose rules requiring ESG disclosures, specifically around the following areas. So environmental, human capital, and cybersecurity matters. Um, which happened to be very, so human capital is things like, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, touching on like how many people are in your company, where are they based out of, um, just having to do with like the social and, and the S. And now on the EU side, they've, you guys, we see seen bed have always been leading us. So I think we've been following, the US has been following in your footsteps for a long time now, but basically what's been happening there is the EU commission has developed this comprehensive policy agenda on sustainable finance since I think it was 2018 with part of the EU action plan on sustainable finance. So ESG regulations are being implemented and there's a lot of changes happening around sustainability disclosures requiring pre contractual agreements and sort of reporting periods. So basically they're having a lot more strict um, pieces in place beyond the broad, hey, we're gonna start requiring things for environmental human capital cybersecurity. Now, what's been happening in the interim, at least in the US before SEC regulations have come up is there's this major focus on ESG disclosures related to providing quantitative data and metrics. So for example, the International Finance Reporting Standards announced very recently that they're forming something called the International Sustainability Standards Board. And what that is, is it's developing a baseline of sustainability disclosure requirements with a commitment for leading investor-focused, by leading investor-focused organizations like SASB, which will consolidate into this new board. So that's a lot of words, but the jumbling of those words basically says is they're taking pre-existing standards like SASB, what being in GRI, all these common standards boards and saying, okay, so for the financial services industry, data security is really important. All you guys have to report on data security. And then maybe we can have some like optional, I don't know, water waste metrics that you guys have to report in there, right? Like there's giving a standard set of this is what we require you to support sign on to. In addition to that, there's a lot of, I guess, councils that are coming up, some formed by um, various international groups that are saying, hey, if you want to sign your name on this piece of paper, Broadridge, Apple, Google, all these firms can sign on, then you have to um, disclose these metrics as a baseline. So that's kind of what's been happening in the interim. Now, I think the reason for this is there's been a big push by, for example, um, groups like BlackRock and other asset managers and investment firms saying our investors care about ESG. And I think there's one reason to do ESG, which is quite obviously it's the right thing to do. Caring about climate and caring about sustainability is the right thing to do. And then the second thing where I think Zach really sits is that um, climate and all of these things. I mean there's so many data points, there's so many statistics out there that I'm not going to cite any right now. I don't know them off the top of my head, but especially with our generation, this younger generation of millennial investors, we are starting to put our money towards things that we care about. And we're not, and I think that's part of the Me Too movement. That's part of the BLM movement. There's a lot of social justice movements happening that are kind of causing this rollout effect of we need to figure out where to put our money in a responsible way. And part of doing that is we are going to invest in companies that we think are care about what we care about, that align with our values. And so um, Larry think all these asset managers are representing this shift on a global scale by kind of simplifying it for us issuers and saying, hey guys, if you we recommend SASC as the is the standard to go by, or we recommend this, and we believe that if you don't do this we are going to not support your board and you're, there's gonna be consequences as a result. So that's kind of like the tangible way of taking all of this um, fluff, all these clouds that are going around and I think putting it into action putting it into board. Um, that was a lot of information, but does that
2: sort of touch on what you're looking for? Yes, thank you. And that's a, a really, really good way of kind of bringing in so many different aspects and then kind of condensing it into into the answer you gave. And I kind of want to, so um, move to to Zach next and also bring in a, a question from the audience. And I'd like to kind of ask you kind of what you feel ESG ratings represent from kind of the real kind of consumer perspective and also kind of what should Gen Z expect from ESG ratings related to impact and linking kind of the question from the audience, are these ESG ratings kind of valid? Like what is the validity there? behind the ratings that are given?
3: it's a really good question. Um, And I think I'll start by talking about like who, I think answering maybe Lucy's question of who are ESG ratings for? Um, ESG ratings were initially developed by institutional investors for institutional investors. Like, you know, groups like Lucy's, like you know who MSCI is you know, my mom has no idea who MSCI is or Sustainalytics or like anyone like that. And so it's been, it, it's a little, in some ways it often feels like ESG when applied to people like you and me, it's a little like square peg round hole. Um, and Wall Street is saying like, oh, well, we trust these guys. You should totally trust them. And it's just like, like but who, what, how, And so you don't necessarily have that. And I think that is a problem that ESG as an industry is working to emerge from of saying, hey, we have this really happy or like fairly happy customer base in the institutional investing world, these really big pools of money. Um, So we can't change too much because like, that's really working for us. But for individuals like, huh, that's not quite working because for individuals, especially when we are trying to invest in a way of like trying to build the world that we want to see, um, a phrase that we like to use is um, invest in building the world that you want to retire into, um, that there's there's a really big disconnect of seeing how ESG would necessarily get you there um, and do that. And it can be really confusing. Um, And so in this kind of comes to of like, what is the tangible impact of divesting or of owning stocks and bonds that are traded on a secondary market? These companies have already issued them. Um, And there's, we kind of see three ways of impact that you have, like why it does matter. Because this is, I think maybe the core question. Why does it matter to invest sustainably? Is is this all bullshit (laughs) basically? Um, And, we strongly believe that it does. Um, the first is voting. Stock markets are a weird form of democracy. We can vote and pressure companies. Naomi, you were talking about this, kind of what goes on beyond the scenes. And ESG re- ratings and those, like it does impact companies. They do think about it and try to improve on that. Um, and so voting is really key. Um, the second is cost of capital. When a company's stock is outperforming because investors are holding it, Um, Tesla did this really well. They are able to sell a bunch of stock to expand faster. This is exactly the type of thing we need for climate solutions. We need them to go way faster. This is something that fossil fuel companies have done historically because people put them in their, their retirement accounts because they have really high dividends, so it makes sense from a tax perspective. That effectively reduces the supply of those shares on the stock market, which keeps their share price inflated, even in very small ways. So that helps those companies' cost of capital. Um, and then the third thing is narrative, is investors, we are herd creatures. We, we have, I mean, people are just herd creatures. We kind of follow heuristics. And like one of them like, is like, oh, you have to sacrifice for sustainable investing. And it's fossil fuels are a really important part of a portfolio that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy because stock prices only go up and down based upon whatever, it it is the collection of what people think will happen in the future. Um, And we've seen examples of when that turns. Um, I like to use the coal index, the US coal index from 2011 to 2020, it fell by 99% in value, 99%. That's a lot. And it's not because we stopped using coal. Unfortunately, we still use plenty. it's because investors, as a group, the the narrative changed, that said that this is no longer a long-term business model that makes sense to invest in, and that created a self-fulfilling prophecy that has hastened the demise of coal. Granted, it's still here, but it's 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 much harder for those companies to raise capital when your stock price has gone down by ninety-nine percent. So that is the type of thing that, especially as individual investors, that we have the capacity to do, um, and pushing forward. And then it's it's you know it's everyone on deck of kind of from institutional up high, pushing those narratives down, and then also on up um, to try and change that because we can get that self-fulfilling prophecy working on our paper. Ben, I don't know if I fully answered your question. I went on my soapbox a bit.
2: No, no that, was, that was really, really interesting. And I really liked the perspective of kind of building the um, self-fulfilling um, prophecy by increasing people's trust in sustainable investing. And throughout kind of my time at Voice, I rated the, um, the sustainable mutual funds and found there was a huge amount of greenwashing. And I mean, I also like the way you mentioned kind of like the older generation of how they understand ESG metrics and in sustainable investing. And I wanted to ask you, like, how can we increase public trust in ESG and in sustainable finance and with with the amount of greenwashing that's there and especially because the finance industry as a whole already is one that isn't inherently that trusted by the general public
3: yeah um it's a tough one i mean frankly this is like like part like that core issue is like kind of why we like like there is room for a carbon collective in this community in in, in this world um, I can share kind of some of what we try. Um, I don't know how to apply it necessarily to much larger groups, but it's it fundamentally comes down to trust and transparency. Um, the hardest thing with ESG is that it's fundamentally not transparent because the companies that like the companies that put all of this time and work. I mean, Naomi, you talked about how many millions of data points, like three hundred million or something insane. That's a fuck ton of work that goes into getting all of that. They want to be paid for that. And so they put that data behind paywalls. So you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars a year more to access that data. And it's not going to be shown publicly. I mean, this is why group like Lucy, the kind of work that you guys are doing in making this transparent and public is so important and then translating it from what is scope one and two, which like I, as a climate nerd, totally know. And I'm like, where's more scope three to like degree C. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that is like, I'm really excited to go look at that and see if we can start incorporating that. Um, so I, I think that is the the crux that ESG finds itself in, is that as a business model, people want transparency, especially individuals, to, in order to have trust. And ESG can, can, will undermine its own business model by being fully transparent in how those decisions are made. Um, and, and so it's just tough. And that's where it's, I think, aggregation and, and these other tools are other ways of coming around it. Um, and I I think it's still a work in progress. Um, I'd be really interested to hear the same question. I mean, you guys, Lucy and Naomi, you guys are also, you're on the institutional side, like, you know, at a different place than I am looking at a different perspective. So I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts uh, as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I wanted to move that question to Lucy and Naomi as well. And specifically, so just to reiterate the question, it's how can we increase public trust in ESG with all the greenwashing? And specifically, um, just something to consider is, Gen Z, how can Gen Z increase their trust in ESG with all the greenwashing because Gen Z is going to be the generation receiving that intergenerational wealth they're going to be the ones with the money so how like how do they know which ESG to invest in and what's going to make impact. Okay i'll take a stop and let Lucy
4: close up Um, so. Okay, I'll I'll do this from the issue of perspective because that's where I'm coming from, of course. I think there's a few things, little things internally that can add to it. First and foremost is before ESG was a thing, which I many could argue when it became a thing, but I think ESG become, has obviously we could all agree has become more popular in the last decade or so. Before that point, undoubtedly. Alice's firms have a responsibility, of a fiduciary responsibility to our clients to build trust. We want to do that so that we make more money. money. We want to do that so that they invest in us, so that they buy into us, so that they have, um, they buy our products, right? That is a basic business <laughs> baseline that we can all agree on. And as part of that, There has been, hopefully, trust building over the last few years, which I think adds into this ESG platform that we're now talking about. Now, I think there's a few candles that you can put on top of the cake, a few add-ons that we can talk about. I think one of them is actually very relevant to what we're doing right now, which is that I believe, and this is the personal belief of mine, that it's really important for people with climate backgrounds, assuming like most of the people who are listening today, go to work for issuers. That's what I'm doing as an example right? We need environmental scientists in every industry. I don't care if it's fast fashion, athletics, um, finance, whatever it might be. I think integrating that green into the non-green industries is a been the way to create this movement that we're talking about. It needs to be people who understand what scope one and two emissions are that are working behind the scenes for companies and outsourcing it all to third parties who are just gonna help you reach your climate goal by offsetting all of your emissions or by buying carbon offsets is in my opinion, not the healthiest way to, to make this happen. So that's thing one. Thing two, um, thanks for the background Abby, um, but thing two is, um, I've also, as I'm thinking about my career path, as I'm getting older, there's been opportunities to go in various directions. So as I mentioned, I'm currently on my corporate strategy team. A lot of people that I work with day to day, there's a lot of lawyers that I work with. There's a lot of marketing people that I worked with. Abby, you were asking before how we sell this ESG dashboard to clients. I put very strict guidelines in place personally for my job, that I am not a marketing person. And yes, it's important that I work with people on the marketing team and the communications team that we're able to sell our products. But first and foremost, what I do is I help reduce the emissions in our facilities. I look at what are our climate goals in the long-term. I'm using a strategy lens, sitting with, you know, working very closely with our executive team to think about how can we reach the goals you want to reach and create emissions in the long run. And so translating that into marketing, I think there's the people who you know, know what language to use, know how to phrase it, understand what's confidential and what's not confidential. But I think it's really important that you have a separation of power between the environmental scientists having very key communication, like regular meetings and regular understanding with that marketing team and with the people who are putting information out to the public. That's why I write my company's sustainability report, right? I make sure that the information that is going out is stuff that was based in strategy and it's not the marketing team is coming up with it. Not that they're not fantastic and they know how to put a spin on things and sell products, but there needs to be a delineation of what is marketing and what is we're selling products and then what is, this is what we're doing. And so um, I think that's something very interesting to think about if you're taking communications classes right now, where you want to sit. And by the way, this just exists within a company itself. I think one of the key issues for why climate change doesn't have better understanding and why there's so much disbelief around it is because there isn't enough communication between the scientists and politicians. So I think you can expand this model I'm using on a much broader scale. but those are two potential, I guess, can handles on top of the baseline of we need to trust our clients, and can hopefully start to create more trust within these systems we're talking about.
1: Naomi, I'm going to open by building on exactly what you just said, which is that is the reason I went into sustainable finance because um, I, yeah, I have a background in asset management. So I, I used to be head of ESG, which is a role that developed whilst I was there um, for a real estate fund manager, so Savills Investment Management in the UK, based in the UK. And um, at the same time, I was doing a master's in environment and sustainable development in London. And I got so frustrated that the two, you know, you had these um, investors who obviously, you know, were engaging with policymakers as well. And then you had saying, we kind of understand now that we need to start investing responsibly, but how do I do that? And then you have all these tools and frameworks coming out of the academic environment and out of universities. um, And I thought if only we could bring these two groups of stakeholders closer, and then obviously I found um, the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership which does exactly that thing so it's funny that you you mentioned that. Um, so reverting to the original question Abigail of, of you know how do you think we can increase public trust? Um, the first thing I would say is really just reiterating earlier what I said in terms of we need to report investment outcomes um, and there, there there's a there's a whole kind of series of definitions between the, the nuances of outcomes, outputs and impacts, but essentially investors need to understand and have those accountability tools to understand what their investments are actually doing and what they actually did in the last year um, to be able to, to have that, um, um, to hold their asset managers. And then as an asset manager, their, their, their assets kind of um, investee companies to account. So I think that's number one, really important. And I'm not saying that, you know, there are ratings which include statements of intent, science-based targets, net zero targets, et cetera, which are, I mean, critical to um, institutional investors making the right decisions and being able to allocate their capital in a a sensible way. But I think um, it's really important that we have those those accountability tools. The second thing that I would say um, is probably counter to some of the discussion, maybe that Zach, you were saying earlier, which is, I think that, People, investors need to get comfortable with complexity. And obviously, investors are always, always looking for how can we make it simpler. We need one metric. We need one way of doing it. Um, but sustainability topics, as we all know, firstly, they they cross a huge gambit of different um, um, different topics. And secondly, there are trade offs that are required, which are not simple. So the one that we've been thinking about recently is how. To manage um, a just transition. So, as we are um, racing towards a net zero economy, investors are at scale divesting from brown sectors, um, from, from carbon intensive sectors. But many of the jobs held in those sectors are actually very, very decent, you know, in, in the decent work um, kind of categorization. So, they're highly unionized, they're very well paid, and, and the rights of those workers are protected. So Investors, I think, really need a basket of um, of indicators to help them see in the round what the sustainable impacts of their funds are doing um, in order to make informed decisions. And I don't make any kind of claims as to what the right and wrong thing there is. Obviously, there's planetary boundaries, which we need to be um, reporting in the context of. But I think looking at sustainability in the round when when investors are looking at their investment impact is also really important to to building trust um, and an understanding there. And then thirdly, just thinking about um, what Jen said, you know, what where is Jen said in all of this? I think it's really important that we develop metrics for things that are coming down the pipeline. Um, and I'm going to talk about adaptation and resilience. Um, obviously, I appreciate the need to um, finance adaptation and make our asset re- assets resilient very much already here. More so in in some markets, but you know something again that came out very strongly from COP26, and we know is going to be a big focus for COP27 um, in in Egypt, is going to be this focus on financing adaptation. Huge swathes of climate finance are being poured into um, mitigation. Quite rightly, you know, we need to uh, reduce emissions um, now, but I think there needs to be a recognition of it's not just looking at the old ESG metrics. You know, when it started, it was about excluding pornography and gambling and, um, you know, this kind of unethical behaviors, which are still, you know, those are important, but the world is moving. And so I think ESG metrics also need to to be, you need that research agenda underlying the ESG kind of space so that, you know, this generation can, can measure the things that are material, to their world right now and will be continuing um, to be really material moving forwards. Did that answer the question? I realise the other panelists have been very good about asking if I answered the questions, whereas I have almost certainly just been on my soapbox for all of my answers, so.
2: (laughs) no worry, no, don't worry at all. And thank you all, all three of you for being able to answer that question. It gives kind of a really, really holistic understanding from all of your different backgrounds. And we've only got a few minutes left, but we've kind of got one question that, we'd like you kind of all to answer, but in kind of very short. So if you can keep it to a minute, that would be um, really appreciated. So we kind of want to ask you, are you hopeful that enough capital will be able to be moved towards higher ESG, more impactful investments so that we could meet 1.5 degrees? So I guess, should we start with Zach?
3: Yeah, um, we absolutely have to be. Um, this, is, this is part of that narrative of saying, this is not charity. This is not a sacrifice. Um, there is a lot of momentum behind it. And this is investing in industries that are fast growing and divesting from those that need to shrink from both economic and ethical reasons. Um, So we are still just at the beginning, but we're seeing uh, what uh, what feels like a ton of momentum building up into this.
2: Yes, amazing, thank you. And Naomi, if you'd like to go next.
4: Yeah, I concur with that. I think we have to. I know the reason that I went into what I went into, which is finance and sustainability. A lot of my peers at Cornell went um, more of the science route. That's what I started out on doing biology and ecology, which is critical and a huge passion of mine and just as important, if not more than anything we're doing because without the science, we wouldn't even know where we're at right now. But I also think that there is not a lot of people going into the industry side of sustainability and there's a lot of gaps um, and a lot of job opportunities there. And I think that's really critical because right now there's so much pressure like the IPCC put on international governments to take hold of this issue and to solve all of our world problems. But um, in my view, that's kind of pushing this problem off to others and the only way to solve climate change is if we take the responsibility ourselves. And obviously Fortune 500, S&P 500 companies it's great that I bring my compost to Whole Foods every week and that I'm vegetarian, that's fantastic. And that is making an impact in terms of carbon emissions, but the real impact is lying. The biggest impact is lying in S&P 500 and uh, um, all these large corporations who are creating the majority of emissions, more than me going vegetarian could ever create as a one individual person. And so I think there needs to be a large movement and uh, companies need to take responsibility for what's going on right now. Um, And and that's where I am where I am. And I think hopefully that's gonna continue to keep the ball rolling towards this 1.5 degree goal that uh that we all want to reach
2: perfect and lucy if you'd like to quickly finish off there
1: yeah third um yeah i completely agree that we we have to um but i think we have to focus on doing so in a holistic way so it's not just about um you know technology and investing in low carbon solutions we have to be thinking about how is the way that we're investing in natural capital helping us reach 1.5 how are we investing in a 1.5 world that um protects people you know there's there's been research showing that more jobs are going to be created by just transition a transition to a, a low economy excuse me low carbon economy than are going to be lost so i think yes we have to and we can do it but um unlocking the other elements of sustainable investment in order to get there i think would be really key
0: definitely i really like This is a great discussion, and I just want to say thank you to all of you for joining in this, you know, transparent and rigorous discussion, and I think it definitely helped me feel like have more clarity about how to interpret these metrics. And so thank you so much for participating, and I'm looking forward to seeing where these conversations go and how it impacts others once we can send it to a greater, greater audience. So thank you, and I'm going to be sending the next panel. I know Ben has to run. Um, next panel is Thomas Honig, Debate with Diego.
3: Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bye.